Thank you for joining us for part two of our podcast discussion on trait-based ecological risk assessment with Paul Vandenbrink and Donald Baird. The PERA approach appears to be very data intensive, and I was wondering if you could highlight the types of information that are needed for these assessments, as well as go through some of the deficiencies in the available data, and if you have any recommendations for improving the information needed for these types of assessments. Okay. I think trait-based approaches assume prior knowledge of traits. In other words, we need, to, we need to draw up a list of the things we're interested in, describe the various states or continuous variation of those, of those traits, and then begin to look at what available data there is out there to, to start compiling trait databases. As I mentioned, ecologists have been doing this already for, for decades, and there are existing trade databases that are out there, and both Paul and I and other people who have been trying to bring in the trait approach into ecotoxicology have been taking advantage of these databases. However, we have to remember that these have been developed by ecologists to describe functional patterns across ecosystems. A good example of this is the United States Geological Survey's uh, Aquatic Insect Trait Database, which we've used uh, extensively for, for our biomonitoring work. But we can make use of these data to develop stressor response models. It's a good place to start. Again, where trait information is not available in a database, then we have to start extracting information from the biological literature. And obviously, that's a, a vast exercise. And although it's time-consuming, it is possible to glean trait information from the ecological literature and to use that information to populate new databases. Uh, for example, Paul mentioned that uh, Masha Rubach, a student, had done this for, for some species that she was working on for her PhD work. Um, but obviously, while compiling any traits database, it's very important to be careful to retain the information behind when you make decisions as to how these trait states were derived. In other words, what we refer to as the metadata. In other words, if you're going to say that something is big and small, you have to then make sure you've, you've written down somewhere how you defined what big and small meant in detail uh, in order for those things to be useful and to make the information transferable from one study to another. Also, we, we, we should be careful how confident we can be regarding their estimated values or states. Now, as we discuss in, in, in actually one of the papers in the series, that we talk about the use of new, what are referred to as knowledge-based tools that are available to extract this type of information from the scientific literature, uh, such as the use of uh, semantic web, which is a way of understanding and, and, and extracting information via the, the internet in a purposeful way and also more uh, arcane methods such as natural language processing engines, which are basically kind of like little bots that will that rove the internet and extract information according to rules that you program into them. So they're kind of like uh, grad students, but uh, you don't have to pay them, uh, in which we do discuss in the paper series. But uh, th these are techniques we've been talking about. I have to say that, that we're still a long way, I think, from realizing their, their real potential. Were there specific deficiencies in the available data that you identified in the course of the workshop? I guess we, what we decided, as I said, is that traits databases until now have been compiled by ecologists, for ecologists, for purposes of ecological interpretation. 
So a lot of the information that's contained within them, the, the particular traits people are interested in, may not be the best ones to describe the types of processes and mechanisms we're interested in looking at in ecotoxicology. However, Paul and Masha and others could coin the term purposeful traits to describe traits for which we have good evidence for their mechanistic role in sensitivity. For example, it's well known that, that something like lipid content can be important as a predictor of uptake for many persistent organic pollutants such as PCBs. So in this way, rather than just taking an existing trait, something like uh, mode of respiration, we might be looking at something very specifically to do with uh, surface area of the, the respiratory apparatus within an organism classified in a general sense and how that relates to the likelihood of uptake uh, of substances from the environment, either from, from air or, or from water. We suggested the development also of a, a new experimental program to explore traits in relation to uptake and elimination and in vivo effects of toxic substances. And we see this obviously, I guess, typical for most ecotoxicological research programs and it's a multidisciplinary effort. In fact, really from a trait standpoint, there would have to be an international research effort. We think it could be as important for the future development of ecotoxicology as the Human Genome Project was for genomics. With all of the information that you and uh, Donald, you and Paul have provided here, though, it, it just seems that moving to a traits-based ERA approach is, it just seems a natural progression of traditional ERA. Well, I'd say, I mean, yeah, I think it's, it's a logical extension from moving from an empirical looking at associations between different variables to, to real, a, me, a real mechanistic understanding of how organisms are responding directly to toxic substances in the environment. One of the papers in the series talks about a SWOT analysis, SWOT, which stands for Strengths, Weaknesses, Opportunities, and Threats of Traits-Based Approaches. So can one of you explain the SWOT analysis for our readers? Um, one of the strengths of the traits-based approaches is that they are transferable across uh, geographies. As um, traits determine uh, the exposure of organisms towards environmental gradients, but both the sensitivity, also the recovery, and the ecosystem interactions, trait composition should converge when environmental gradients are the same. And therefore, reference sites from one region can be used uh, for other regions. And that is not true, of course, for taxonomy, because when geographies are far apart, then we are very sure that taxonomy will be uh, different, while trade composition can be the same if the environmental gradient is the same. Uh, another big uh, strength and advantage of trade-based approaches is that it adds mechanistic diagnostic knowledge to your assessment. So we really need that to bring the field of ecotoxicology further. As Donald explained before, the SSD concept is a nice concept to address the uncertainty of sensitivity of uh, species, but it doesn't add any mechanistic knowledge, of course. And using traits and their relationship with sensitivity, for instance, but also to recovery, adds mechanistic knowledge. There's also no new sampling methodology needed. So we don't need new methods in essence, and that is a particularly useful if we want to use those approaches for developing countries. 
I'll come back to that later. There's also uh, an old tradition of using traits. Of course, often indicator species are used well, to indicate pollution. For instance, the EPT index is used as water quality indicator, since the orders of uh, Ephemeroptera, Plecoptera, and Trichoptera are seen as highly sensitive to pollution. And it is probably a result of some of their traits, for instance, that they have gills. It can also uh, supplement taxonomic analysis. You, don't, you can also do a taxonomic analysis and do a trait uh, analysis uh, besides that. One of the weaknesses is, uh, we come back to that later, that's the data management and the knowledge development. Uh, for instance, what the length of an individual is can be highly disputed between scientists. Also, one of the weaknesses is that the, the functional redundancy. So you might not see an effect on the trade composition of a community while its biodiversity is affected. So it cannot be used directly to protect biodiversity and also not charismatic or endangered species. A big weakness of the approach is the autocorrelation of traits. You have trait syndromes. So not all the correlations you find, for instance, between traits and sensitivity uh, need to have a mechanistic foundation. If you group uh, macroinvertebrates together, then you see that gill breeding organisms occur in terrestrial still and running water, and species with some trait composition group together. Uh, just to give a very simple uh, example, my cat is very lazy and hungry, and that also makes that cat very fat and very immobile. So it has a very low dispersal, but it also makes the cat very friendly because it wants food for me. So all these traits make a, a syndrome together. The opportunities for traits-based risk assessment is an automated image analysis, for instance, for metric traits, had a surface volume ratio to determine that maybe that can be automated. It also provides a simple tool for developing countries where taxonomy is not available. Here you can see whether an organism has gills or not without knowing its name, its species name. You can also measure its length without knowing the species name. It can be combined with genetic and biotech tools. So maybe I can hand over to Donald briefly so he can explain uh, the content of a workshop that will be held along the CTEC Europe Milan meeting. Thanks, Paul. Um, I guess what I would say is that, that one of the things we've noticed since we've been working on trace-based ecological risk assessment over the last few years is that uh, in order to specify traits precisely, it's really important that we have very good, particularly when you're looking at this within biological samples with lots of different organisms, it's very useful to have uh, things identified to the level of taxonomic species if possible. This is still very challenging, and one of the problems we have for, uh, in interpreting biomonitoring samples is we're often forced to aggregate organisms at a fairly high taxonomic level, and therefore we can't really precisely specify their trait characteristics. And that obviously gives us r real limitations in the potential of using this approach for diagnostic purposes. As Paul mentioned, one of the techniques we've been developing to try to get around this is to, is to begin to use DNA-based methods for identification of taxonomic composition of biological samples. And as Paul said, we're planning to have a, a CTAC workshop, but it will be uh, just before the CTAC meeting in Milan in May this year.
in which we're going to explore the use particularly of uh, high throughput DNA sequencing methods in order to do this. So that this we think is a, is a key obstacle to, to really realizing the potential of the trait-based approach and that's why we think it's important to do it. Thank you very much, uh, Donald. One of the threats of trait-based approaches is the low availability of trait data. There are a few data sets around, but, but not many. But, well, our experience is that you, if, if you want to test mechanistic hypothesis, for instance, between sensitivity and trait, but also of recovery potential uh, and trait, you need to make a fit-for-purpose uh, trait-based database anyway. For some traits, for instance, size, really simple to do that, but for other traits, this is really difficult uh, to do. Also, the quantitative interpretation of traits is a bit difficult. If you're interested in gills, for instance, is one gill from one specimen of a mayfly the same as the gills of uh, one trout individual? Can you add those two up when you look at communities? Also, one of the threats is to develop non-relevant traits, and that's, again, related, of course, to this trait syndrome, that traits are uh, correlated to each other. Also, the taxonomic resolution and the, uh, of historic databases may not be sufficient. For some traits, you really need the species-level uh, information, and which might not be always available for historic databases. And standardization and appropriate trait uh, descriptions is also difficult. Even size poses a problem. Uh, where, where does exactly the, the individual start and where does it stop? That is already can uh, lead to a lot of discussions. Well, Paul, thank you so much for that explanation. Thank you very much, Jenny. Again, for our listeners, you've been listening to Paul Vandenbrink and Donald Baird discuss the special series, Traits-Based Ecological Risk Assessment. You can access the full series of papers in the April 2011 issue of IEAM. Just go to ctacjournals.org. I'm Jenny Shaw, and thank you for listening to the IEAM podcast.